Everybody loves the touchdown. Throws to the back of the end zone, and it is touchdown by Holmes. The grand slam. Fly ball to center field. Ethier has done it again. It's a grand slam. The buzzer beater. Gets it to LeBron for three for the win. Yes! But how did those players get to that moment? And who built the venue and signed the contracts? We dig into the business side of sports and give you the answers. This is Sports Business Radio. Now, from our studios in Portland, Oregon, with Sports Business Radio, here's your host, Brian Berger. Well, thanks for checking out the only show in the country dedicated to covering the business side of sports on a global scale. Happy 2014 to you. We're very excited to be celebrating our 10th year on the air in 2014. Thank you so much for listening over the years. Uh, you can visit the Sports Business blog or download the SBR podcast on demand. Find everything at sportsbusinessradio.com. You can follow me on Twitter at SB Radio. We're on some great apps as well. Uh, the Swell app, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher. Of course, you can find us on iTunes and again at sportsbusinessradio.com. Some good guests coming up on the show this week. We've got Maury Brown from the bizofbaseball.com. He'll join me and we will discuss the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame voting fallout. Lots to discuss there. Is the system broken? I think it is. We'll discuss how to fix it with Maury Brown coming up on the show. Also, Jason Bolt, who is the founder and CEO of the sports-themed sunglasses company Society 43. Interesting company. If you haven't heard of them, I've actually done some work with them, so I'm pretty familiar with them. Great concept, and uh, we'll learn more about Society 43 coming up on the show. It should give any of you out there incentive. If you've got a dream and you want to chase it, you think you have a good idea, after you hear Jason Bolt's story, it will give you more motivation to chase your dreams as well. I'm joined, as always, by our our executive producer, Brian Griggs. Griggs, Happy New Year. How are you? Same to you. Doing very well. I'm uh, just uh, enjoying the NFL playoffs and all the fun that comes with that. So uh, can't complain. So Florida State-Auburn, the natty, turned out to be a pretty darn good football game. Came down to the end. Florida State beats Auburn. Great TV ratings. Uh, did you watch the game and what did you think? I did, and I think that was a, a classic tale of what football is. It's like it is so much a four-quarter game. I mean, it's like the first half of Auburn running away with it, but then the second half is a whole other ball game. And and it was, I just that's why I love football because it's like literally every quarter can be a whole different game. And it was, uh, it was an epic battle to the end. I loved it. NFL playoffs. It's been interesting because Griggs, the wild card round, three of the four games. Granted, it was freezing cold, but three of the four games, one indoors in Indianapolis didn't sell out until the very end. That's big news when NFL games aren't selling out. But also big news, NFL continues record-setting numbers on TV. Griggs, check this out. 205 million people tuned in to watch NFL football this past season during the regular season. 34 of the top 35 shows on TV, not sports shows, but on TV, period, were NFL games this past fall. So, Maybe not as many people going to the venues, but more and more people watching on TV. And that's really the struggle that these teams have. How do you get Joe Blow off the couch to come to your venue and spend money on uh, tickets and drinks and parking and merchandise when the experience at home is so good? That's true. And I mean, with all the, the new TVs coming out every day and new surround sound, I mean, you can make it feel like you're right in the 
the game when you're at home. It's crazy. But, yeah, I, I saw your tweet when the ratings came out, and I was just like, wow. I mean, again, NFL is king across the board. And like you said, not even just in sports shows. I mean, that's TV everywhere. I mean, that's all shows. Crazy. Yeah, it really is. And again, you know, no matter what the bad news may be in the NFL, concussions or off the field incidents with players, people continue to watch NFL on TV. And that's why you see these rights fees go up and up every year because live programming is the best form of programming for most of these networks. And NFL is the best of the best. Uh, Bobby Petrino who was fired in disgrace at Arkansas in 2011. You may remember that he had an affair with a woman who was working for him. He crashed his motorcycle. He lied about it. This is a guy who uh, left Louisville abruptly for the Atlanta Falcons, left the Atlanta Falcons abruptly to go to Arkansas, left Arkansas in disgrace, as I just said. And now Louisville is giving him another chance to coach at the school after Charlie Strong left to go take the University of Texas job. Griggs, the problem I have with this is this is everything that's wrong with college sports, and it goes to show you just how great an emphasis winning takes with university presidents and athletic directors. You're going to hire a guy back like Bobby Petrino who's got a track record, as I just outlined, and you're going to let him – come walk into living rooms of recruits and try and get young men to come to your school. Good luck. Yeah. It's amazing how, like you said, in college athletes or athletics, especially it's like you, these guys, once they, they win a couple of games and get a winning record, they can do whatever they want and people will still give them chances. I mean, how many chances does this guy need before somebody shuts him down? It's pretty crazy. I mean, yeah, he's, he's proven to be a pretty decent coach, but it's like, how far do you go? And like you say, recruits, I mean, what are the parents going to think when this guy walks into their house? Well, and there's already several, highly touted recruits who had committed to Louisville who have decommitted since Bobby Petrino was named head coach. So again, you can bring a guy in who may win football games for you, but at what cost? Are you going to lose some recruits? Are you going to get people who say, you know what, I'm not playing for that guy or I'm not letting my son play for that guy? And, you know, maybe people who just say, I'm not behind Bobby Petrino and what he stands for. Uh, the last thing we'll discuss before rolling into the show, Alex Rodriguez, there's supposed to be some news on the front of Alex Rodriguez and his penalty. You remember he got the 211-game penalty. Is that going to stand? Are they going to reduce it? Is A-Rod versus Major League Baseball going to end up going to court? Are they going to settle this? Uh, we don't have that news quite yet, but as soon as we do, obviously we'll put it out on Twitter at SB Radio, and then also we'll discuss it on our next show. But we wanted to let you know that we're watching that story when we come back maury brown from the biz of baseball.com we will discuss the major league baseball hall of fame vote three players got in greg maddox tom glavin and frank thomas very well deserving but who was left off the ballot and who are some of the people that uh, voted and why did they vote the way they did does the system need to be fixed i think it does we'll discuss that next with maury brown from the biz of baseball.com you're listening to sports business radio happy 2014 podcast this show and any other past SBR episode at sportsbusinessradio.com. Back with more SBR after this. Hi, it's Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. When I'm not on the radio, I team with nationally known sports writer and broadcaster Rick Buecher former Nike PR senior executive Lee Weinstein, and veteran strategic communications executive John Lashway to form media and social media training firm Everything is on the Record. 
The Everything is on the Record team provides a unique blend of strategic PR and journalism expertise to our clients. We have worked in the trenches in corporate boardrooms with CEOs and company spokespeople. We've also worked in newsrooms alongside editors and reporters. Everything is on the Record uses an innovative and unique approach to media training. Through the use of current media and social media examples, tailored specifically for you, we prepare you for how best to relate to the digital media world that exists today. Whether you're meeting with a reporter, sitting at your home computer, or typing on your smartphone, you're on the record. We'll also put you through real-life scenarios where you'd be dealing with a reporter, so when you see the real thing, you'll be well-prepared and comfortable. With the goal of enhancing your image, protecting your reputation, and helping you connect with the people who are most important to your brand, we will show you how to develop the skills you need to be successful in a world where everyone has a camera, a recorder, and a desire to make news. For more information on our services and to learn more about our team of communications all-stars, go online to everythingisontherecord.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at everythingisontherecord.com. You can call us today at 503-701-2215. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. My guest is Maury Brown. He's been on this show many times before. You can find him on Twitter at bizballmaury. Maury, happy new year. How are you? I'm doing well, Brian. Happy new year to you. So let's start with a topic that's made big news recently, the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame inductions. Better last year than this year. At least we had some guys inducted this year. We didn't go uh, over like we did last year. Greg Maddox gets in, Tom Glavin, and Frank Thomas. Uh, I was surprised that Maddox didn't get 100% of the votes. And, you know, I think one of the things, Morian, we'll talk about this here in a moment is Instead of talking about the guys who got in, we're talking about the guys who didn't get in, and we're talking about the voting process. Does that seem to be your takeaway from this week as well? Well, it is, Brian. And, I mean, this is something that, of course, has gained more momentum over time. I mean, you mentioned the Ofer last year, and that's when, you know, we have had Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens on the, the ballot. You know, we have the home run leader all time and single season, and we have arguably the greatest pitcher of this generation, not in the Hall of Fame. And, of course, it's centered around the issues around performance-enhancing drugs. The issue, really, Brian, to me, has always been the ambiguity around what the criteria is. You know, character, things of this nature that are completely subjective. And the writers are just having a heck of a time trying to to wrestle with this issue. I think some of them take it extremely serious. They find it moral, a moral obligation to keep quote-unquote cheaters out of there. But if you do some research and look back, we've had players monkeying around with steroids as that early as the 70s. And if you want to go back further, we've got, you know, certainly the greenie issues and amphetamines, and we've got the cocaine issue of the 80s. So it becomes a very gray line, and it's very um, a personal vote, and it makes it very difficult, and that's where the problem in there lies. It's just um, different barometers for individuals based upon a criteria that's very vague. I did some research. So there's 571 members of the Baseball Writers Association who have a vote for Major League Baseball Hall of Fame. Of those writers, many of them now are not even covering baseball. You've got someone at the Baltimore Sun who's in the Metro section. You've got people writing 
uh, food stories. So the rule is you've got to be uh, a writer for 10 years to be able to be eligible to be a voter for the Baseball Hall of Fame. But the problem is, more is that a lot of those writers who got their votes in the 70s and 80s are now on to different beats. Meanwhile, you've got people who I consider baseball experts like Vin Scully, Bob Costas, Keith Olbermann, John Miller, Brian Kenny, and even yourself who don't have a vote. And it seems to me like the wrong people are voting. Well, this is interesting because I've been up for the Baseball Writers Association, and it is a very subjective process to get in. First of all, there is the whole issue that the, the, the Writers Association has said, straight up, that if you are part of MLB-owned uh, entities, so MLB.com, uh, Masson, you can go down the line, you know, and this is becoming a growing problem as clubs continue to go into regional sports networks and then provide online um, resources to support them and have those riders. Those riders are not allowed in, at least new ones, the ones that have been grandfathered in, guys like Peter Gammons, et cetera, they will get in. Um, but that, that's the issue at hand. So those guys are basically wiped off right there. So Brian Kenny, who's working for MLB Network, isn't going to get in due to that issue. Now, we've currently had some online riders get in. You know, we've got certainly baseball prospectus, fan graph riders are in. It's the outlet. If the outlet gets accepted, then it's, it's really actually pretty easy. It's very surprising. If baseball prospectus came forward and said Maury is, is on staff and he's a full-time guy and goes to games, X amount of games, then he's in. It's really that simple, but it, it gets so gray. And that's the thing. The biggest problem is this. Um, I don't know who bestowed that the writers were the br- most brilliant people in the world, but at some point in time they did. And this is the, the, the dilemma that we live in. They're the people, of course, that are in the club or in the lodge, however you want to frame it, they, of course, don't have an issue with this. Those on the outside, of course, sit there and go, look, this is you know crazy, the criteria by which we're getting in there. But I'll come back to this, Brian. I don't know. Um, maybe some younger people that have been around and watched the PED issue and they don't have a problem with it. But I would say that it's just going to take time before you get over some of these problems. I I really don't. This idea that we've got writers that are like, I'm just going to vote for just Jack Morris and ignore everybody on the ballot because of the steroid era. Well, I don't know how to inform Ken Gurnick that um, the PED issue in baseball is never going away. I mean, this is the thing that I find ironic. I don't know how to deal with the steroid era. Well, what the heck? It's never going away. So, you know, to at some point, the hard decisions have to be made. You want to have a vote for the Hall of Fame? Great. Then make hard decisions and live by those decisions and try and be transparent about it. And that that's the way it's going to have to be. You know, and you can make an argument that actually the controversy is good for baseball. You don't have these conversations around the NBA or, or the NFL or NHL or the NFL, maybe with Ray Guy and whether a punter should go in. But beyond that, baseball is really the only one that has this, this discussion around the Hall of Fame vote. And, and I think that in dark circles, you would have people say it's actually good for baseball that we're having this conversation. It's, it makes the headlines. Yeah, you might be right about that, but I think the system is seriously flawed. I think it's outdated. It needs to be fixed. I think there's too many people voting. I think the wrong people are voting. I would also argue that uh, the living 
Major League Baseball Hall of Famers should have a vote, so your peers should have a vote. It shouldn't just be media people that have a vote. The wrong media people are voting. The people who watch the most baseball and study it uh, and are familiar with the game don't have the votes. So it's a flawed system. I think we're going to continue to see this be a topic in the future if things don't change. But I get a, I just get a feeling that there are going to be some changes to the process. I think one of the changes we might see uh, first is there's a limit of 10 players that you can vote for on a ballot. I think that limit will probably be removed so you can vote for as many players as you want. You look at a guy like Craig Biggio who missed out on the hall by two votes. If there wasn't that limit, he's probably in. Oh, I, I, I know he would be in. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind. And, you know, to put some, some interesting um, factoid here for you, the last time four players went in on uh, a ballot was 1955, the year that Joe DiMaggio finally got in. So, I mean, it, you know, the fact that we came that close, I mean, there's a lot of discussion. Why isn't Edgar Martinez and this guy or that guy? Well, the ballot's just been stacked of lately, and that's not going to change as long as you have this problem with the, the PED issue out there. I mean, it's just going to continue to have these guys stacked up. Now, Rafael Palmero will drop off the ballot. He didn't get 5% of the vote. So some of these guys that would have normally been slam dunks, I mean, Rafael Palmero is, is probably is, – Without the PED issue hanging over his head, he goes into the Hall of Fame. I don't see how he doesn't. But it, you're going to have guys like that on there, whether it's Jeff Bagwell or whether it's Mike Piazza or others that have been somehow implicated and guilty by suspicion that that ballot's going to continue to be stopped. Yeah, it's interesting. I just think there are so many guys that are worthy of the Hall of Fame. You look at next year, you've got to think that Randy Johnson – Pedro Martinez and John Smoltz are slam dunks for first ballot Hall of Famers, you would think. Um, and then you wonder, you know, guys like Kurt Schilling and Biggio and Bagwell and Piazza who didn't get in, do their votes continue to decrease? And what does it mean for the the leftovers? Well, on this this first time thing, that's the, the thing that's really interesting. I mean, you got a lot of guys, those guys, I... I Smoltz, maybe not on the first time, but I mean, and that's even, I mean, that's highly subjective. But I mean, I, I easily see, um, you mentioned Johnson. I mean, guys like that, they're going to go in. I mean, I just can't. Hank Griffey Jr., guys like that. I mean, first timers, absolutely. And then you do start to get into this backlog of players. So I do see the increase in the number of votes. I don't know if it'll be wide open, Brian, but I do see them saying, hey, we're going to have to just open this up. And then the problem, of course, is is that um, we're in a, a kind of a an, an era where there's some exceptional players. What happens in down years? Are we going to start to get some guys that are maybe, you know, quote unquote, substandard getting in? I don't know, but um, certainly the process needs some tweaking. There's little doubt in my mind about that. Moy Brown from the BizOfBaseball.com is joining us. You can find him on Twitter at BizBallMoy. So let's talk about Maddox, Glavin, and Thomas for a moment. And by the way, those three happen to be three of my favorite players who I watched as I was growing up. So I was very excited that each of them got in, and I think they're very well-deserving. And if you look at a guy like Maddox, 355 wins. Uh, you know, he had a span where I think it was over two or three years where he had like a 1.6 ERA. He was dominant. And you look at Maddox and Glavin, and they weren't guys who threw – you know, Randy Johnson or even Pedro Martinez type of heat. They were crafty. They always were prepared. They were professionals. Uh, Frank Thomas really changed the game as far as his discipline. 
Uh, he hit for average. He drove in runs. He hit home runs. His on-base percentage was fantastic. So, you know, I don't think you can argue with any one of those three getting in. My biggest disappointment was that Maddox wasn't on 100% of the ballots. And again, that's where you start looking at the responsibility of the voters and how you could, you know, you had some guys vote for uh, Arma- Armando Benitez. Yeah, they're, they're leaving Greg Maddox. 16 writers left Greg Maddox off the ballot. That's irresponsible. Well, it is. I, mean, I don't know why anybody would do that. Um, and this gets into the thing. I mean, you mentioned the total body of voters. And you're going to get a bunch of curmudgeons in there. There's little doubting. I mean, in, in any industry, when you throw that many people together, you're going to get some some behavior that seems to fly in the face of conventional wisdom. Um, and this is, I think, the problem. I mean, you've got guys like Murray Chass, or you've got others, you know, we've got, we had a writer, I'm not even going to mention his name, that tried to make a political statement by giving his vote to the people. The deadspin, you know, I don't know if that's giving the vote to the people, because he was so... Um, disenchanted with the process. Um, I find it kind of ironic that you would um, take your vote as a political statement about how antiquated this and how much of a circus the vote process has turned into by doing something that basically amplifies the circus. But, I mean, it it isn't that way. Craig Maddox should get 100% of the vote. I mean, he's a four-time Cy Young winner for all the statistics that you mentioned, for how he changed the game, for being a student of of the game and every batter that he faced. I mean, he, by every measure, he's a Hall of Famer. Why he doesn't get 100% of the vote, um, it turns into the political quagmire that we see with the voting process. And, uh, I, you know, we've touched, we've talked about this the entire segment here. I mean, it really is um, a, um, a psychological and, and, and sociological discussion around uh, the individuals that make the, up the baseball writers and those that are get a Hall of Fame vote, and um, it, it's an issue. So again, in summary, for me on this topic, uh, I would reduce the number of voters greatly. I, I'd take it down to like 50 or 100. I would make sure the people who are voting are the Vin Scully's, Bob Costas, Keith Olbermans, John Miller's, Brian Kenny's, and Maury Brown's, people who know the game of baseball and watch it closely. I would also include living Major League Baseball Hall of Famers. I think your peers should have a vote. And then, you know, if you want to give the fans like one big vote, so, you know, fans are able to get involved and feel like they're touching this in some way, shape, or form. And they're, you know, if there's 50 voters, they're one fiftieth of the vote. I think that would be a, a good move too. But the current system with 571 voters, and again, many of these voters got their votes in the 70s and 80s. Some of them are covering food and the metro section for the local paper. Some of them are bloggers now. They haven't watched baseball games or been in touch with baseball in a long time. I think it needs to change. Let's move on to another topic that I know you wrote about for Forbes.com. It was a great piece if you haven't read it. Uh, you talked about how Robinson Cano, you know, we we all kind of scoffed at that big contract he got with the Seattle Mariners. You say that he may well be worth that contract. Why? Well, so to really kind of clarify, what I'm saying is that um, it may not be, you know, worth that money. What I'm saying is, is that um, the the free agent deals that are going on right now really need to be looked at on a case-by-case basis. So we're going to look at it from the other side of the coin with the Cano deal and look at the Mariners. But here, here's a club that has had horrible attendance woes. They've basically cut their attendance in half in, over a period of time. 
they are debt-free, and they really have no payroll obligations with Felix Hernandez, the exception, beyond this current season. So if you really need to make a change and you are in Seattle, which has been non-competitive, it's in a mid-market, it's not exactly seen as a hotbed for marketing for whatever reason, compared to New York, and you're going to try and get that free agent to leave New York to come to Seattle and jump coasts, then you're going to have to overcompensate. And, and whether we're looking at Albert Pujols or whether we're looking at Josh Hamilton or whether we're looking at any of these players that are veteran free agents that are getting 10-year deals doing to have to – the contract durations are getting longer, try and get the money that needs to be spread out over time, and then the value of player performance at the tail end of these, the, the clubs are flush with cash due to all of these regional sports network deals on top of the fact that, that national TV money will now more than double beginning next year. You, can, you have risk aversion. You have the ability to, to gamble more than you have before. So the Cano deal doesn't look crazy in some regards. I mean, it, it's, it's like the world is upside down in some ways. But when you think about it, if you are in a position to do something like that and you want that player, then you're going to have to pay that money. It's kind of like the lottery, right? I mean, if you don't play, you can't win. And if you want to get into a competitive bidding situation with other clubs, we can look at the Tanaka deal right now where there are, you know, there's almost, you know, 15 clubs that are going to try and bid for this, you know, Japanese free agent. To do that, of course, means that the guy with probably the most money and can offer the best deal in a certain market from a competitive standpoint is going to win out on that. So it, it is a something that's very difficult, I think, for the average fan. They expect their team to be competitive every year. It doesn't make sense sometimes for teams to do it. Other teams will make moves because they need to for other reasons outside of baseball, which I don't always agree with. I don't think that the Cano deal in and of itself writes the Mariners in terms of the standing unless they're going to do more. And Seattle happens to be one of those teams that seems to be very hot on Tanaka, and pitching is one of the problems that Seattle has. So it's very. I, I wish fans would not look at it in a vacuum. The market changes every year, and the market changes within the year based upon how other teams sign players. It sets a precedent and moves things forward. So uh, that's what the piece is about. It really looks at all the components of how the business of Major League Baseball is changing and revenue streams and what really works and what doesn't and how the market is changing. I mean, I have a quote at the beginning of it with Albert Spaulding talking about how salaries are out of control in 1918. And we can talk about Babe Ruth making more money than President Hoover did. Or we can talk about Nolan Ryan being the first million annual million-dollar-a-year player and how everybody has bemoaned this, oh, my gosh, players are getting paid too much. It's a sliding scale, Brian. It will always be like this as, as the game moves forward and as its popularity continues to grow. I know I'm putting you on the spot and you may not have this in front of you, but on average, tell our listeners how much annually a Major League Baseball team is taking in from TV money. And I know it varies from your New Yorks to your Seattles, and it depends on market size, but it's a big chunk of the income, isn't it? Well, it is, and it's changed a lot. I mean, I don't have the average right now. I mean, I think that it can range from as little as, you know, maybe 10 to 15 million, maybe somewhat less in smaller markets. But some of these teams are starting to approach $100 million annually in television right fees. 
I mean, the Dodger deal is going to be worth seven to eight billion dollars. You've got the Rangers with a three billion dollar deal. You've got the Angels with a three billion dollar deal. The Mariners have just purchased the majority rights uh, to Root Sports Northwest. It'll be worth two billion. I mean, it continues to escalate, and this is what's changed things. It used to be, you know, it was just the Yankees and the Red Sox, right? I mean, we always talked about, you know, the arms race, and I'm not talking about pitching. I'm talking about, you know, trying to outbuy each other. Well, now all there are a host of other teams. The AOS is stacked with money, and that really has changed things um, and, and makes it more even more competitive. Teams are wrapping up their talent. Um, they, the players that they develop, they get them into extensions before they hit free agency. That thins out the free agency pool, which gets into a supply and demand dilemma. Thus, players on the free agent market means they can request more money, and that changes the value for everybody in subsequent years. So it's this snowballing effect that you have um, with lots of money. Um, and strangely, here's the thing that's amazing. With all these deals that are so exorbitant or seem to be exorbitant on the face of it, uh, still Major League Baseball player payroll accounted for just 47% of the gross revenues that came in. Baseball is an $8 billion-plus industry now compared to about $3 billion that was spent on player payroll. So that doesn't say, you know, hey, that's all the money that comes in, that the, that the rest of it is profit. Of course it isn't. What it's saying is, is that really, even though there are some deals that are really exorbitant right now or on the face of it, or some of them just flat out are exorbitant, there's still a lot of money flowing into the league. Always great stuff, informative information from Maury Brown with the bizofbaseball.com. Find him on Twitter at BizBallMori. Maury, again, Happy New Year. Always a pleasure to have you join me on the show, and uh, let's catch up soon. All right, Brian, you take care of yourself. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Stay in touch with SBR on Twitter, twitter.com slash SBRadio. With the air, like I don't care, baby, by the way. Hi, this is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. It's no secret that we're battling a tough economy these days. It's more difficult than ever for companies to position their brand in a unique way and reach their target audience. Sports Business Radio can help you, though. Sports Business Radio is syndicated in markets nationwide. Our popular podcast is regularly rated in the top 100 business news podcasts on iTunes and has listeners around the world. But our radio network and podcast aren't the only places your company will receive exposure when you join our family of sponsors. We'll also give you exposure via sportsbusinessradio.com and at our new Sports Executive Speaker Series events, which feature a conversation with a key decision maker from the world of sports in front of a live audience. And best of all, we can expose your product to the big-name guests that appear on our show. We'd love to have you on our team. Please contact me at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com or at 503-701-2215 if you're interested in becoming a sponsor of Sports Business Radio. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. My guest is Jason Bolt. He is the founder and CEO of Society 43, a company that makes officially licensed sports-themed sunglasses for 80 top college sports programs and the NBA. You can find the company online at society43.com. Follow Jason Bolt on Twitter at Where's Bolt and follow Society43 on Twitter at Society43. Jason, thanks for joining me on Sports Business Radio. Thanks, Brian. Uh, thanks for having me. So obviously we've gotten to know each other via working together, but I want you to share the story, kind of the genesis of the uh, origination of Society43, the company. It's a great story, but tell our listeners how you came up with the idea to start this company. 
Yeah, I'd be happy to do so. Um, really all starts uh, back when I was at University of Oregon in 2010 as a uh, proud duck, uh, going to some games at Autzen Stadium there. I was uh, one of the many fans in the student section uh, wearing all sorts of green and yellow licensed gear and really noticed that uh, there wasn't anything available as far as sunglasses go in school colors um, and took it upon myself to do some research, find out if, uh, if there were any competitors out there and didn't, didn't really find anything and decided to start uh, sourcing, looking for sources and bringing some green and yellow sunglasses in. And uh, one thing led to another. It took, took some time to find the right manufacturer, but found a really great one and, and presented the products to the duck store, which was an ordeal in itself, just getting in front of them uh, for the first time, kind of selling a product and, and pitched the sunglasses. And they caught the vision and really thought they would do well and decided to do a test in the stores. And that first year, we actually sold to roughly 25% of the student population there at, there at University of Oregon. Uh, and it was just incredible seeing you know, other students and fans wearing them around campus and at games. So that first meeting with the University of Oregon and the bookstore people, I mean, that's really your entree into uh, credibility and legitimacy with a major brand. Describe that meeting to the listeners. Yeah, uh, well, as I said, it was my first time really uh, doing any selling anything, um, and so uh, I spent spent a, a good good chunk of time uh, reaching out to them, trying to get that initial meeting. I, I must have emailed uh, the duck store buyers there, I don't know, fifteen to twenty times, uh, and finally received a response saying uh, I had, you know, I had a five ten minutes to, to present my product to come in. Um, so I, I took it upon myself to create a, a PowerPoint presentation on why the products would do well, what the demographic was, um, and I wore my, my best suit and tie as a student <laughs> um, <laughs> in there and walked in and, you know, they had a big table and the two buyers were sitting at the end of it and I, I was extremely nervous. I'll, I'll say that I was definitely sweating and, and pitting out, uh, <laughs> but um, was able to um, gather my thoughts enough and take the products out. I had, I think, two pairs of green frame, yellow lens sunglasses and green frame uh, or yellow frame, green lens sunglasses and handed them to the buyer and was setting up my, my PowerPoint, getting ready to show them what an amazing product this would be and how well it would do for them. Uh, and uh, while I was setting up, um, they, they stopped me and said, you know, we'll, we'll take 144 of each. We'll do a test program there. And uh, that was an incredible moment for me. I mean, just my first foray into retail um, and getting that, like you said, stamp of validation uh, was, was huge. I mean, you started Society 43 essentially out of your apartment at the University of Oregon. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah, I, I, I do have uh, pictures uh uh, of my living room stacked with boxes uh, full of green and yellow sunglasses. Uh, so I had to kind of, I remember at one point I was sitting on a box and, and uh, eating breakfast. Uh, my cereal bowl was on another because I, I barely had any room. So it was definitely that classic startup, uh, you know, in the apartment and making it happen. My guest is Jason Bolt. He's the founder and CEO of Society 43. They're a company that makes officially licensed sports-themed sunglasses for 80 top collegiate sports programs, and they've got a deal with the NBA. You can find them online at society43.com. Jason, many of our listeners 
wonder how the licensing process works. When you want to utilize the official mark of a school or an NBA team, what does that process look like? Yeah, there, there are several different ways to go about um, obtaining licenses. Um, some schools, uh, some universities um, manage their own licensing programs. So University of Oregon is one of those schools where you submit an application directly to their licensing department. Uh, they will review the application, um, and that application typically includes a business plan, projections for your particular products, um, and then samples, if you have them, of those products. Um, they'll review them, uh, and the time varies, and then uh, follow up with any questions or, or um, you know, let you know if you've been granted licensing or not. Um, so there are a few independent schools like that, and then there's also the uh, application process through the collegiate licensing company, um, which controls a majority of um, the licensing for most major schools. Uh, and it's a similar process. Um, you submit your application, but you can apply for um, uh, multiple schools at once. And, and then once you're granted licensing with, with a CLC school, um, the process for adding additional schools is, is uh, a much more fluid process. Uh, it's all online and you check a box and then pay the uh, upfront guarantee fee and, and royalties on each product sold after that. So when you're talking about upfront fees and royalties, is that different for each school that you'd work with or entity that you work with, or is it pretty universal across the board? Um, it actually varies quite a bit depending uh, on the program. Uh, so you have smaller schools that uh, will charge as little as $50 up front um, because they're trying to encourage more licensees to offer products uh, with their logos. And then you have the much larger schools that um, charge upwards of 2000 to $2,500 um, to use uh, their their uh, logos because there is such high demand, uh, and you know that that will narrow down the field and the uh, the caliber of um, licensee applications. So you've obviously got something here. You've grown a lot since 2010. Uh, what is it? 200 percent year over year that you've grown since you started in 2010. Yeah, yeah. Our sales growth has been an average of 200 uh, percent. So. We're, uh, we're hanging on for the ride and having a great time. How do you, you know, a lot of people wonder this too. So you've got these schools, 80 colleges, you've got the MBA. Uh, how do you decide how much to stock of certain product? And, you know, we just had the bowl games where you had Florida right. and, or Florida State and Auburn playing in the national championship. What's the cadence and rhythm of keeping inventory so you're not sitting on too much inventory at the end of the year? Uh, that's a very good question. And, and it's something that we've uh, struggled with every year, you know, more refined it every year because uh, forecasting for, um, you know, 80 different schools as well as uh, 30 different NBA teams uh, is difficult. Um, we, we try and factor, take into account as many factors as possible that will influence, you know, the longevity of a season, whether or not they'll go into the playoffs or into a bowl game. Um, size of the fan base, the climate, um, sunnier, uh, states tend to do well, better with sunglasses, although Oregon is still our number one uh, selling product. So huh. it's an interesting little fact. But we put a lot of time and actually developed a, a great, um, well, believe it or not, Excel sheet that uh, 
that we plug these different metrics into, um, and it helps us generate uh, a forecast for a given year. Uh, and you know, we have other outside variables, such as um, retail partners, merchandising, things like that, where we'll go in and, and tweak the numbers um, as we see fit. But it is a constantly evolving model and something that we're always looking to improve. And then you sell your product online at society43.com. You've got retailers, which we'll talk about in a minute. But then I would imagine that probably the number one form of sales for you comes in the way of campus bookstores at universities and uh, arena team stores when it comes to MBA product. Is that accurate? Yes. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. Um, the majority of our sales do come through those channels, and we definitely see large spikes on game day. Um, with it being, you know, it's a better price point, 20 to $30 an impulse buy item. And uh, whether it's sunny out or not, uh, fans just love them because they're, you know, they're bright, they represent their team, uh, and they're, they're good-looking sunglasses. I've heard you talk about the sunglasses before, and you're right. They're very affordable, 20 to $30. Uh, they're wear-tested, so they're not some flimsy kind of like door prize party type of glasses. They're legitimate sunglasses that actually, uh, from what I've seen, withhold the the wear and rigors of uh, being at a sporting event where you might drop your sunglasses or, you know, they, they might take a beating. Yeah, yeah. And from the start, I, I wanted to create a, a higher quality product, um, something that fans could wear, you know, uh, for a very long time, and, and we knew that they'd be wearing them at tailgates. Um, there'd be a lot of, uh, you know, student section fans wearing them, so they'd take abuse. Uh, and for that reason, we we went through a number of iterations as far as the, the style and the model and the features we wanted to include. Uh, and, you know, my initial uh, product testing was to hand them out to friends uh, at the University of Oregon and tell them to you know, abuse them, use them on the weekends, take them to games, use them as you would any normal pair, uh, and tell me what you like, didn't like, and, and we'll make improvements. And that's, that's proved to be a good process because we have, you know, less than uh, 1% of our sunglasses are returned for uh, defective reasons. So we're really proud of that, and, and we constantly work on making them better and improving the product. Jason Bolt, the founder and CEO of Society 43, is my guest. Your relationships with retailers, I would imagine that's also a very important part of the lifeblood of the success of your company. Who are some of your retail partners and how do you keep them happy so that they continue to sell through more, more uh, sunglasses for you? Yeah. Uh, well, our first major retail partner um, was the Oregon Duck Store, like I mentioned, and we have an excellent relationship with them. Um, they continue to be our, our top uh, retail outlet, um, and it's all about you know the relationships uh, that you build with your retailers and, and building trust. So they know that we're going to you know provide a product that's going to sell. We're going to provide them support when they need it. Um, we also partner with many of our retailers to. Uh, do marketing promotions. Um, so we provide value uh, beyond the product, and I think you have to do that now in business uh, in order to maintain those relationships and, and instill that trust. Um, some other retailers we, we count among our biggest are uh, Dick's Sporting Goods, um, Lids, uh, and Football Fanatics, uh, which is focused on online retail, and now they have a stadium division. So we have a really strong um, 
relationship with all of them and, and look forward to expanding those programs. So you've made great inroads, again, with 80 top collegiate sports programs. You've made a deal with the NBA. You have a model that could seemingly take – you could take to other pro sports leagues around the world. What does that planning look like for you right now? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the ultimate goal. Uh, you know, we, we've we seen the success in the, at the collegiate level uh, and now at the NBA. Uh, fans just have embraced the product, and uh, and we, we see this – um, as a as a platform, really, we can expand to every major sports league around the world. Um, you know, they're they're a mix of, of both fashion and function. So it's something that that uh, people are going to wear. Sunglasses provide you know protection for your eyes, and uh, as long as we're providing a quality product that fans really see as something that um, allows them to tap into their fan passion and really express uh, the love for their team, uh, you know, they're going to embrace that product. I just think Major League Baseball would be a great fit for you guys because <laughs> obviously the the games are played outside. It's played during uh, mostly the the sunny part of the year, so yeah. uh, it seems like a, a great relationship for you guys to have. And I'm sure, uh, like you said, you'll be knocking on many of those pro sports league doors. But you know, it's not just U.S. pro sports leagues. You could probably take this to European soccer leagues and and other places and other parts of the world. Yeah. Yeah, we uh, obviously, as far as the large uh, worldwide market goes, um, soccer is is up there. Uh, it's the largest. So um, we've already made some inroads there, and and are working on uh, on those relationships, and um, you know, formulating some distribution strategies. Uh, so when we uh, do get the licenses, we're able to really hit the market, uh, hit the ground running, and and have the right uh, distribution set up to reach customers. So your background is in law. A lot of people would look at you and go, how do you go from that to the founder and CEO of a company that makes officially licensed sports-themed sunglasses? Yeah, uh, good question. Uh, I, you know, law prepared me well for uh, interacting, I think, with, with people and, and um, building relationships and um, really focusing on on the details of things because that's very important when you're running a company. Um, and I, my background there uh, has definitely helped me uh, with what I'm, you know, what I do now uh, in terms of um, the, the amount of kind of responsibility, details, and processes you need to follow to make sure that um, you're doing things in the best way possible. Um, but I've always loved sports. Uh, I've been an you know, avid sports fan and played many sports, so it's really the marriage of uh, a lot of different passions uh, uh, when I launched this company and, and uh, just really uh, count myself lucky to, to be able to uh, do something like this uh, and something that is ultimately uh, very fun for me to, to be involved in. So. I think it's a great lesson to our audience too. We have a lot of sports NBA students and college students who listen to this show and uh, it, it shows a kind of the ability to change direction in your career if you need to um, and pursue your passion. But it also shows that, you know, you're doing something that you, you saw an, an opening and you saw something there that there was a need that wasn't being filled and you went out and, and now you're pursuing it. So I think it's a great lesson for our listeners. Yeah, appreciate that. I think, yeah, like you said, you can um, – pivot into uh, different different things very easily now with the amount of information we have available to us. Uh, so 
follow follow your dreams. Not to be cliche, but <laughs> available. Before I let you go, I know you're also very passionate about uh, contributing to the community, giving back to charity. Uh, you support the Two Feet Project. Tell me about yes. the Two Feet Project. Uh, the Two Feet Project Project is uh, an incredible organization. Um, it's a nonprofit uh, that a friend of mine actually founded. Um, uh, about a year after I founded Society 43. Uh, and what they do is uh, they uh, start sports teams in underprivileged communities. Um, and, you know, there's no sign-up fee for those who are involved. Uh, they provide jerseys uh, and cleats and, and all the gear. But the, the players actually have to earn it um, through going out into the community and, and doing public service. Um, there's a variety of different things they can do to, to earn their spot on the team as well as, you know, the jerseys and the other gear. Um, and then they also find coaches for those teams that are mentors in their community. So these uh, young men and women that join the teams are not only uh, getting um, the great uh, influence of being on a team, they're also um, able to, you know, uh, tap into this, this mentor and, and their resources and, and really grow personally. Um, so the first team was uh, founded in Kenya, Africa, uh, and we were lucky enough to go over there uh, earlier in 2013 and, and see all the progress that's been made. Um, and it's just been incredible. Um, so it's a really, really great organization. We're proud to be a part of it. Uh, and every pair of sunglasses purchased from Society 43 um, contributes uh, to that cause. That's a great cause, and I, I commend you for a lot of people in your position you know, they'll give the money and they'll send out the press releases, but they don't roll up their sleeves and actually get involved with the charity. And you do that. So uh, yeah. I give you a lot of credit for that. Yeah, I appreciate it. We, we definitely think it's valuable for, for us and our employees uh, and, and the community just to see that, that we're willing to get involved. And, and we want to do more than just write a check. All right, Jason Bolt, the founder and CEO of Society 43. You can find Society 43 online at society43.com. You can follow them on Twitter at Society 43, and you can follow Jason on Twitter at Where's Bolt. Jason, a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks for joining me on Sports Business Radio, and we'll catch up with you soon. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Stay in the know at sportsbusinessradio.com. Podcasts, blogs, and more. SBR will be right back. I wanted the fame, but not the cover of Newsweek. Oh, well, guess Vegas can't be choosy. Wanted to receive attention from my music. Wanted to be left alone in public. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. Brian Berger goes one-on-one with the biggest names. My guest is David Stern. He's the commissioner of the NBA. It is always a pleasure, Brian. Bill Hancock, he's the executive director of the Bull Championship Series. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. Mark, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. My guest is Mickey Loomis. He's the executive vice president and general manager of the world champion New Orleans Saints. Pleasure to be with you guys. Mr. Allen, thanks for joining me. Thank you. My guest is Mark Emmert. He's the president of the NCAA. Oh, happy to join you. My pleasure. My guest is Eric Spolstra. He's the head coach of the Miami Heat. Brian, appreciate it. Glad to, glad to be on the show. Mr. Nicholas, it's an honor to have you on Sports Business Radio. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Brian. Visit sportsbusinessradio.com and subscribe to our free iTunes podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and stay connected to the business side of sports only with Sports Business Radio. 
The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. We are back, and thank you so much for tuning in to Sports Business Radio. A reminder, you can find our podcast at sportsbusinessradio.com. Other places you can find us. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us on the Swell app, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, lots of places you can find us, but it all starts at sportsbusinessradio.com. You can follow me on Twitter at SB Radio. I want to remind some of you out there who work in the sports PR industry that we are putting on a fantastic event in New York City, the second annual Sports PR Summit. It takes place on May 22nd, 2014 at the MLB Fan Cave. It's an invite-only event. If you're interested in attending, go to sportsprsummit.com for more information. But a great event. Our two featured speakers this year, uh, conversations with Jeremy Schapp from ESPN and executive editor from Sports Illustrated, John Wartime. So some really good insight. Great room of uh, PR people, senior PR people, 100 people, invite only, sportsprsummit.com if you want more information on that. Thank you to our guest this week, Maury Brown from thebizofbaseball.com. Jason Bolt from Society43. You can find them online at society43.com. Our show staff, Brian Griggs, Josh Blank, Doug Zanger. Again, a podcast reminder, you can catch our show on demand Every week, every time we do a show, it'll be uploaded to your iTunes. Just go to sportsbusinessradio.com or type in sportsbusinessradio when you go to your iTunes and have our show podcast uploaded automatically every time you turn on your mobile device. Again, follow me on Twitter at SB Radio. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio. Hi, it's Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. When I'm not on the radio, I team with nationally known sports writer and broadcaster Rick Buecher, former Nike PR senior executive Lee Weinstein, and veteran strategic communications executive John Lashway to form media and social media training firm Everything is on the Record. The Everything is on the Record team provides a unique blend of strategic PR and journalism expertise to our clients. We have worked in the trenches in corporate boardrooms with CEOs and company spokespeople. We've also worked in newsrooms alongside editors and reporters. Everything is on the Record uses an innovative and unique approach to media training. Through the use of current media and social media examples tailored specifically for you, we prepare you for how best to relate to the digital media world that exists today. Whether you're meeting with a reporter, sitting at your home computer, or typing on your smartphone, you're on the record. We'll also put you through real-life scenarios where you'd be dealing with a reporter so when you see the real thing, you'll be well-prepared and comfortable. With a goal of enhancing your image, protecting your reputation, and helping you connect with the people who are most important to your brand, we will show you how to develop the skills you need to be successful in a world where everyone has a camera, a recorder, and a desire to make news. For more information on our services and to learn more about our team of communications all-stars, go online to everythingisontherecord.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at everythingisontherecord.com. You can call us today at 503 701 2215.